2008, England. Fenton, in Staffordshire, is a quiet little town, with not much going on, usually. Nestled in the West Midlands, one wouldn't expect it to be the setting of a story most strange and awful, but here we lay our scene. Two men are out walking a dog, two friends. Glenn Holland's head is a retired RAF airman and welder, and his friend Peter Malloy is accompanying him on a stroll through town. It's around 7pm in May, so one might picture the sun to be glistening low on the horizon, a serene scene. But as they're walking, the two men come across a woman in distress, middle-aged and with an accent they can't quite place. She approaches the men and pets the dog, appearing friendly, but Peter gets a bad feeling. Something's not quite right here. Still, they get to talking and the woman tells them that she's looking for her twin sister. She hasn't seen her since last night. She tells them her name, Sabina, and her sister is Ursula. Sabina is carrying her possessions in a clear plastic bag, but doesn't look homeless per se. Peter starts to worry. Sabina's acting suspiciously, nervous, jittery. But Glenn is resolved to help her. According to those who know him, he's that kind of person, always willing to lend a hand to those in need. Sabina asks for directions to a nearby hotel or B&B, somewhere she can stay the night. But Glenn takes pity on her. She doesn't look like she's got much money, so he said she could spend the night on his sofa, the least he could do for a poor woman in need. Sabina accepted the offer and told him of how she was looking for her sister still, who was apparently in hospital. She offered Glenn and Peter cigarettes, but no sooner had they put them in their mouths did she snatch them away. Taken aback, they asked what was wrong. She said they may have been poisoned. Strange behaviour indeed, and the strange behaviour grew even stranger when they arrived at Glenn's house. After a period of seemingly relaxing, she suddenly grew very tense. She's constantly getting up to look out of the windows, as if searching for a person or someone who might be watching them, and the two men start to think she might have fled an abuser. Malloy left around midnight, still feeling that something was off about the woman, but Glenn was concerned only with helping her, it seemed. The next day, Glenn calls his brother and enlists his help in calling the local hospitals to try and find Sabina's sister, Ursula. The efforts felt futile, and by the evening, he needed to start with dinner. He then realised he was out of tea bags. Now, I don't know why he wanted tea with dinner, maybe that was just what he wanted, but either way, he popped next door to borrow some tea bags. His friendly neighbour obliged and Glenn went back inside his house. His neighbour prepared to re-enter his own home, but around a minute later, Glenn burst from his door, covered in blood, shouting for help. His neighbour rushed to him, asking what had happened. She stabbed me, was all he said, before succumbing to his wounds. It was all the neighbour could do to simply comfort him in his last moments, his generosity seemingly repaid with betrayal, violence most undeserved. Sabina fled the scene, caught on CCTV, hitting herself in the head with a hammer. She was found soon by a passing motorist who tried to restrain her, but she hit him with a paving slab. The pursuit, given by paramedics, ended when she leapt from a bridge 40 feet down onto the A50. She broke both her ankles and fractured her skull. Let's rewind to before those two men had a fateful encounter with a woman most deranged. Did she even have a sister, you may be wondering? Well, she did. In fact, Ursula wasn't just a fabrication, she was really in the hospital. The reason why is equally chilling, however. The previous day, for seemingly no reason, both women had run into traffic on the M6 motorway, a highway for our listeners across the pond, and were struck by cars. 
Police and paramedics came to help, but Ursula shouted at the police that they weren't real, and Sabina warned her sister that the paramedics were going to steal their organs. They scratched and kicked. Eventually, Ursula was taken to hospital, and Sabina, seemingly unconcerned, simply told the police, quote, We say, in Sweden, that an accident rarely comes alone. Usually, at least one more follows. Maybe two. Unquote. Next day, Sabina was taken to court and given a psychiatric evaluation, but put free. The sentence for public disruption was a day in prison, which they reckoned she'd served by having spent the night there. After wandering around all day looking for her sister, she met Glenn Peter, and we know how that ended. Or do we? There's even more to this story than we've indulged here. The two women were Swedish, Ursula lived in the US, and Sabina lived in Ireland. Why had they met up and gone across the Irish Sea to England? Why had they run into traffic? Why did Sabina kill a man who by every account was trying to help her? When she was tried for manslaughter in 2009, Sabina pled guilty to manslaughter with diminished responsibility on account of madness. She never tried to explain why she'd done what she did, answering every question on that subject with no comment. She had killed Glenn Hollinshead. She'd stabbed him five times with a kitchen knife. The judge eventually pronounced his sentence. I'll let him tell it. Quote, I understand that the sentence will seem entirely inadequate to the relatives of the deceased. However, I have sentenced on the basis that the reason for the killing was the mental illness, and therefore the culpability of the defendant is low, and therefore the sentence I have passed is designed to protect the public. It is not designed to reflect the grief that the relatives have suffered or to measure the value of Mr. Holland's head life. No sentence that I could pass could do that. It was a sentence which I hope fairly measures a truly tragic event. She was suffering from delusions which she believed to be true, and they dictated her behaviour. It is not one of those cases where the defendant could have done something to avoid the onset." End quote. But what delusion, exactly? One of a specific kind, most strange and poorly understood. You see, her sister wasn't just an accessory to the crime, argued the defence. She was the cause of it. Both were mad in equal measure, and that madness had amplified in an echo chamber, a feedback loop. This isn't the only case of this. We'll be looking at another one further down the line of a family in Australia whose own madness was more than enough to go around. Today on Demystified, we look into the fact and the fiction behind Folie Adieu, the madness for two. Today's human mystery, continuing the theme of the season, revolves around the phenomenon of folie adieu, or the madness of two in French, or madness for two. Describing it will take a little bit of time because it comes in a bunch of different forms. It's not always two, it can be more than that. For these cases, some call it folie à famille or folie à plusieurs, madness of the family or of the several. In the research literature, it's generally called folie adieu, but the labels shared psychosis, shared delusional disorder, shared psychotic disorder, and induced delusional disorder have all been variously used. In the simplest of terms, possibly, folie adieu is a state of mental delusion, possibly psychosis, that's caused by two or more people spurring each other into that state of delusion. The symptoms of delusional belief, sometimes even hallucinations, can be transferred from one person to another. 
and in their shared delusion they end up feeding off of each other for confirmation, which serves simply to strengthen the delusion. It was first identified by Ernest Charles Lezeg and Jean-Pierre Folray, two French psychiatrists working in the 19th century. A joint publication in 1877 entitled La Folie à Dieu, ou Folie Communiquée, The Madness of Two, or Communicated Madness, outlined their observations and several pairs of individuals who appeared to transfer delusions to each other and then reinforce those delusions amongst each other. Now, first and foremost, identifying what counts as a delusion is tricky in and of itself and will be a recurring theme throughout this episode. The Diagnostic and Statistical Manual of Mental Disorders, or DSM, which the American Psychiatric Association uses to identify and categorize mental disorders, specifies that a delusion must be something that isn't commonly shared amongst cultural groups. Tricky, eh? For instance, take the Icelandic belief in elves, not nearly as common as once it was, but it used to be basically widespread throughout the population of Ireland. We'd normally call a person thinking that elves live in rocks that'll get angry if you smash their homes a delusion, but if it's a culturally ubiquitous delusion, then it's not a delusion, you see. This is important because at what point does a shared delusion become a cultural belief? How many people does it take? A tribe, perhaps? Well, that could be as small as a few families, couldn't it? And does the wider context count? If it was one village within a county, you'd call it a delusion. But if it was one independent group, well, perhaps not. At what point does it count as mass delusion or mass psychosis? Uh, the dancing plague, for instance. For folie adieu, in the more classical cases of two people, there are generally two broad categories and many smaller subcategories. The first distinction is to make whether it's a case of folie imposée, or imposed madness, or folie simultanée, simultaneous madness. In the former case, one person who is having delusions, known as the primary, imposes that belief on another person, the secondary. The assumption here is that the secondary was sane before being given the delusion by the primary, and would have remained sane if not for that relationship. In these cases, it's been observed that the secondary, if hospitalized separately from the primary, can often shake their delusion without much need for extensive treatment. In the latter case, both people are independently holding delusions and then come to influence each other's delusions, or both are predisposed to delusions and their relationship triggers them. There is no primary-secondary relationship here, as both are equally deluded. In the case of our introduction, the case of Ursula and Sabine Erickson from 2008, the defense team for Sabina claimed that she was the secondary in a case of folie imposée. Her sister had flown over to visit her, for some reason we don't know, and had given her delusional beliefs that led to the incidents of self-harm and the killing of Glenn Hollinshead. Here's the kicker. Generally speaking, before psychiatric help, the primary doesn't realize they're harming the secondary. Oftentimes, quite the contrary. They believe that they're helping them by revealing hidden information. For instance, if you became deluded that someone was poisoning your coffee, and you saw your friend about to drink your coffee, you might slap it out of their hand and warn them. Should they believe you and come under your delusion, that would make you the primary and them the secondary, but neither of you the wiser to your now shared delusion. From there, it's often a case of confirmation bias. Everything you see becomes another piece of evidence, much like how people who believe in conspiracy theories take every person who disagrees with them, no matter how respected that person is in their field, as evidence of a conspiracy. Only serious intervention can then shake the delusion from the primary, or both in the case of folly simultaneity. For the secondary, however, it's easier to realize that the delusions have been foisted upon you, if treated properly. 
As Psychology Today put it, a delusion is, or delusions are, quote, fixed beliefs that do not change even when a person is confronted with conflicting evidence, end quote. Now, here's where we could get quite controversial, because what about people who believe the world is 6,000 years old? It's not a widespread belief, to be sure, but we still call young earth creationism a belief, because it's based on religious faith. But it's a fixed belief that doesn't change when confronted with conflicting evidence, isn't it? Are all young earth creationists delusional? We'd call someone who believes the earth is flat delusional, I have no problem saying that, they are. But is someone who thinks that vaccines cause autism delusional? Again, I'd be inclined towards yes there, they absolutely don't and it's been proven. But you can see how we cut closer and closer to things that are considered sincerely held beliefs with the accepted definitions of delusion. That's why it's very tricky to talk about. If a family believes that the world is going to end and form an insular, almost cult-like belief system, like, say, a certain church in the US that's very famous for their litigation and infamous for being hated by everyone because of their terrible beliefs and actions, is that a shared delusion? Well, not according to those who argue that they're just expressing their freedom of religion. At what point does a belief become actively harmful? Again, I skirt controversy here, but when God told Abraham to kill his son, if you believe the Bible literally, that was just a test of faith. If a man tried to kill his son today because God told him to, that's a delusion, isn't it? For my part, I'm an agnostic atheist, I've mentioned before. I don't rule out the existence of that which is unexplainable, and I find stories of those things to be very interesting and fun to indulge in, but I don't believe in it. The extraordinary claim requires the extraordinary evidence. So you can see, from my perspective, one might be wary of those whose beliefs, no matter how sincerely held, start to verge on the delusional. As comedian Jim Jeffries put it, that's the thing about crazy people. They don't know they're crazy, and that's what makes them crazy. I suppose the arch example of this would be something like Jonestown, where Jim Jones's People's Temple committed mass suicide and many were straight up murdered. 909 people died as a result of many people sharing a mass delusion. Should we be worried about the so-called crazy kooks who say the world is going to end soon? Sure, it's harmless enough, for now, but when does it become not harmless? Anyways, without indulging in too many slippery slope fallacies in one episode, back to folly adieu. There's an axis that gets built to classify the delusions, and the x-axis we can call bizarre and non-bizarre, and the y-axis we call mood congruent versus mood neutral. A bizarre delusion is one that could never possibly be true when viewed through the lens of sanity. For example, if you believe that somebody had secretly killed every person in the world and replaced them with an exact robot replica, not only do we not have robots advanced enough to do that, but it's a task of such Herculean proportions for no reason it could never be pulled off. It is a bizarre delusion. I would say flat earth theory comes under this. We've seen the science behind donut-shaped worlds, sure, and maybe one day we'll build orbital ring worlds, but a flat earth is not scientifically possible, let alone the seemingly pointless global cover-up. A bizarre delusion. A non-bizarre delusion is one that could be true, but isn't. For instance, if you believed you were being spied on by someone who was following you everywhere in an unmarked car and plain clothes, a master of disguise, it is within the realm of physical possibility, but it's extremely unlikely to be true. 
Then the next axis, mood congruent versus mood neutral. Mood congruent delusions are one that, as the name implies, can come and go with a mood swing. This is particularly prevalent in cases of mania, depression, or manic depressives. A manic example would be going to a casino because you believe that you'll win the big prize on the Powerball lottery, buying a hundred tickets. Despite the statistical chance being tiny, and the chance being based on chance, you have absolutely no control over it. A depressive example would be fixating on the possibility of being hit by a falling tree in the forest on a sunny day. There's no good reason to believe that either of these things will happen, and in neither event can you predict or control the outcome, but you're convinced that it will definitely happen, but only when struck by a manic or depressive mood. Finally, there's mood-neutral delusions, where the belief is not linked to someone's mood. It could be, for instance, that you believe that your neighbour is secretly a super spy like James Bond. It doesn't affect you particularly, and your mood won't affect whether or not you believe it. A mood congruence has no effect on whether the delusion is bizarre or not, and bizarre or not delusions are neither more nor less likely to be mood-dependent. There are two main factors that contribute to shared delusions, stress and isolation. Genetic predisposition towards it can have an effect, but the actual triggering is usually caused by one of those two. In times of stress, the brain's adrenal gland releases cortisol, the stress hormone, which can trigger dopamine production, causing mood swings. Again, we can see how in a cult-like setting, delusions can spread. You're cut off from friends and family, your only contacts are those who share the delusion. It's the same argument that online conspiracy theorists like flat earthers, or those of a more sinister bent, fall into this category. Online isolation can be as real as physical isolation, entering into an echo chamber like a terrible gravity well. Now, identifying and diagnosing shared delusions is equally tricky in itself. The DSM-5 lists three criteria. Number one, the delusion must develop in the context of a close relationship with an individual with an already established delusion. Number two, the delusion must be very similar or identical to the one established. Number three, the delusion can't be better explained by another psychological condition. It's made all the trickier by the fact that the delusional individuals consider themselves to be sane, often more sane than those around them, and so they often avoid help for their conditions. It can be treated, however, which is good news. Both medication and therapy can be used, or a mix of the two, and when treated, the delusions often disappear entirely. As above, a secondary in a case of folly imposé can often shake the delusion organically once the influence of the primary is removed. But not always. Oftentimes with people removed from cults, a deprogramming method is needed, involving people getting to trust the psychiatrist because the delusional person will be resentful of those trying to help them. Now we return to our two cases. Were these cases of folie adieu, or in the second case we'll explore, folie affamie? Ursula and Sabina Eriksson were born in Sweden on the 3rd of November 1967. They had two siblings, aside from each other, an older sister and an older brother. The youth was apparently typical. No instances recorded of twin languages developing, as sometimes happens. No mental health problems, no criminal behaviour. By the year 2000, both had gone their separate ways in life. Ursula lived in the United States and Sabina lived in Ireland with a partner and two children. But something changed. What, exactly, we don't know. On the 16th of May 2008, Ursula left her home and flew to Ireland to visit Sabina. For more unclear reasons, they both then secretly fled Sabina's home and took a ferry, we think, across the Irish Sea to Liverpool. There, they boarded a National Express bus bound for London. They started acting very strangely. 
At Kiel Services, a service station, they disembarked, claiming they weren't feeling well, but according to the bus driver, he was happy to let them go at an unscheduled stop because they were beginning to act erratically. They clung tightly to their bags, and when they tried to reboard, the bus driver asked to look into them to see if they perhaps had drugs. They refused his search, so he refused them to return. He then conferred with the manager of the service station, and she agreed. Their erratic movements, nervousness, and fixation with their own bags led the police to be called, but they found no issue, and the two women were let go. Then the trouble really began. The pair departed on foot and tried to cross the motorway. Now, I've driven the M6 many times. It's busy. There is no feasible way to run across on foot with cars going 70 miles an hour at least at basically all hours of the day without getting hit. And they did. Sabina was hit by a car and the police were called. When they tried to figure out what the women were doing, Ursula broke free and ran into the side of a juggernaut going nearly 60 miles an hour. Both of her legs were crushed. Sabina followed and was hit by a car again, full on. Both women survived, somehow, all of this captured on CCTV and a crew that were filming motorway cops nearby. When the paramedics tried to help, Ursula spat, scratched at them and bit them, screaming, quote, I recognise you. I know you're not real. End quote. Sabina then shouted, quote, They're going to steal your organs. End quote. For the sake of time, I'll skip ahead. You know what happens next. Sabina is released from custody and is taken in by Glenn Hollinshead, the concerned citizen, and repays that kindness by killing him. At the trial, the lawyers claim it was a case of folie adieu. What delusion? Well, we don't know, because when questioned, both refused to explain their actions. Hollinshead's brother blamed the court and the cops. If she was clearly so delusional, why was she released a day after her custody? Why hadn't the psychiatric evaluation concluded that she was dangerously delusional after running into traffic and shouting to her sister the paramedics were going to steal their organs? He didn't blame Sabina. He likened her to a rabid dog, an apt, if a little blunt, comparison, perhaps. A person in the grip of something hard to control and hard to stop without outside help. Sabina was eligible for release back in 2011, having been given five years with time served considered. Apparently, she turned to religion in prison, which is interesting, given the context of what we were talking about earlier. The second case is less depressing, but no less chilling. Australia, 2016. The outskirts of Melbourne. It's the 29th of August, which in Australia is towards the end of a winter. Mark and Jacob Tromp, 51 and 53 at the time, and their three children, Rihanna, Mitchell and Ella, 29, 25 and 22, all seemed healthy and normal. The family ran an earth removal business and a berry farm. It was a family venture, and they all worked at it most days of the year. But on that day in August, they all piled into their family car and fled. Just like that. When the police looked into it, they found the house door unlocked and passports, credit cards and mobile phones all conspicuously left. They had intended to go off the grid. According to the testimony of Mitchell after the fact, the parents had been growing steadily more paranoid over the past few weeks. One of them, we don't know which, became convinced that somebody was going to try and kill them and take their money. So the parents ordered everyone to leave their phones, their passports and their credit cards and get into the car. Mitchell, the only one seemingly not under the delusion, kept his phone on him for that reason. He said he'd gone along because he was afraid for his parents and siblings. But they became increasingly difficult to deal with. 30 kilometers into their mad dash, they found his phone and threw it out the car, convinced it was being used to track them. 
They drove through the day and the night over 800 kilometres to the town of Bathurst near Sydney. Look at Bathurst and Melbourne on a map and you'll see how far that is, how insane that is and how dangerous it is to drive there on no sleep. At 7am the next day, Mitchell left the family at Bathurst. Later that morning, the four remaining members of the Trump family were spotted near some local caves. The two other children, Rihanna and Ella, then left, stealing a nearby car. They drove south to a small town called Goulburn and reported their parents as missing. By now, the media had picked the story up and people were confounded. This wasn't the remote outback where a family of five could easily go mad and missing. They were living in, driving around, a populated metropolitan area. Ella and Rihanna parted ways, with Ella afraid for the family's horses back at the homestead. She returned and was picked up by the police. Mitchell got back the next day, having taken trains. Whilst Mitchell and Ella seemed fine and mostly sane, Rihanna was catatonic when she was found. She'd climbed into the back of a truck in Goulburn and had driven an hour away before being spotted. When she was picked up, she said she couldn't remember where she was or even what her own name was. What are the parents? Well, they kept going. 600 kilometres back south of the town of Wangrata. When they split up and Jacoba was found, 350 kilometres north of Flat, wandering aimlessly, we don't know how she got there. Six days after they fled, Mark was picked up near Wangrata Airport and taken into custody for a mental health assessment. Mitchell said of the event, quote, I've never seen anything like it. It's really hard to explain or put a word on it, but they were just fearing for their lives and then they decided to flee. It was a build-up of different, normal, everyday events, just pressure, and it got worse and worse as the days went by, end quote. Mark ended up apologising for the confusion they caused and the resources spent trying to find them. So, what happened here? Was it a case of folie à famille? Well, maybe not totally. Mitchell didn't believe it, and Ella snapped out of it fairly quickly. Rihanna seemed to have a harder time doing that. But the two primaries, or perhaps the primary and the secondary, in some order or another, the parents, continued to believe in the delusion for several days. Eventually, all of them got cleared by psychiatrists and have mostly said of the event that they simply can't explain why they acted how they did. And the police closed the case. No charges brought, no harm done. Just a very strange little affair that, despite their troubles remembering, I don't think any of them will forget. So what's the deal with folie à deux? It seems to be very much a real thing, as psychiatrists and researchers seem to be confirming and is in the DSMs in various forms, but we don't really know that much about it. We know it can be induced by mood in some cases, stress and isolation in others, and that's all there is to it, I suppose. Maybe we don't need to know anything more about it. But Glenn Holland's head's brother might disagree. In benign cases, or more benign, like the Trump family, all it does is cause inconvenience and an embarrassing, if slightly concerning, story for the ages. In more severe cases, people can end up dying. But that's true of all delusions, not just this one. It is, however, important to understand the mental conditions in order to try and help people with those conditions. I create two new categories, perhaps. Those cases of folie à deux that are spread organically, and those that are spread intentionally. Now, a little bit tricky again. People often don't realise they're harming their partner in the delusion, so you can't call it malicious. But a cult leader recruiting people to manipulate them is far different from a family suffering from an isolated, stressful working period. For instance, 
Can it be spread by someone who isn't suffering the delusion? Let's say you maliciously go about spreading some delusional belief, like the idea that the world is run by lizard people. You don't believe it yourself. You're doing this to make ad revenue from a website that spreads these delusions. This happens in real life, by the way. This isn't just hypothetical. I read an article once about a man who countered fake news bloggers, having tracked one down, and when he asked him why he did it, he said, I don't believe any of it. Others do, though, and I make a lot of money pandering to those beliefs. But the people who read those articles did believe it. They picked up the delusion and spread it to others as well. I am a skeptic, I wear that label with pride, but with reservations, because many people who claim that label often do so to promote damaging, baseless delusions of their own. Like the people who spread the racism-based idea of ancient aliens, a delusion that can be harmful to real-life studies of history and teaching others' history that gets picked up, in part because the people spreading it say, I'm just asking questions. That's the way, isn't it, how you get away with saying something ridiculous without having to give any evidence of it, you follow it up with, I'm just asking questions. Hey, could the moon landing be fake? I'm just asking questions here. I'm just asking questions. But what do you do when you present your moon landing skeptic with the evidence to prove it wasn't faked, of which there is myriad? Now, just watch a rerun of Mythbusters if you want to do it easy. But they still cling to their belief. What then? It's a delusion, isn't it? The backfire effect may have something to do with it. If you've not heard of this, it's this. Because our beliefs are ingrained as part of our personality, our sense of self, what Freud, to the criticism of more modern psychiatry, would have called the ego, when those beliefs are challenged, no matter how peripheral they may seem to our identity, it can trigger the parts of the brain associated with fight-or-flight response. That's right. Having your belief challenged by contradictory evidence, no matter how damning, can trigger a physical response similar to somebody challenging you to an actual fight. So oftentimes when someone is presented with contrary evidence to their belief, not only do they not internalize the evidence, thus creating an aforementioned delusion proper, but they even double down on the delusion and thus seek out others who share their delusions. Those of you clued into the discourse around the effects of social media and fake news on our senses of what is and isn't real may have become painfully aware of how painfully relevant this topic is to the modern world. The goal of fake news is often specifically to blur the line between the real and the fake. When all news could be fake, no news can be real, and thus it's just a matter of choosing which facts you like the best. And in that sense, you choose what is a delusion and what is a sincerely held belief. I apologise if this is getting dour and serious, but it is serious. So our lesson for today is to watch out for those who you know, your friends, your family, and be cautious of that which is asserted without evidence and be careful not to fall into a delusion of your own. The line is blurry, but if you keep your eyes peeled, you may be able to spot somebody falling into a delusion, and in doing so, preventing others, or even yourself, from also becoming deluded. Problems are always best shared, but perhaps with a professional in a controlled setting, rather than a close friend in an isolated one. If you spend too long looking at yourself in the mirror, you may just end up seeing double. And with that, we close the book, for now at least, on Folie Adieu, The Madness for Two. This episode of Demystified was written, recorded, and produced by me, Ashley Styles, with hosting by Wizard Studios and music from ProductionCrate.com. Go to ProductionCrate.com for all of your royalty-free music needs. Follow us on Twitter at Demystified underscore pod and support us on Patreon at Demystified by Ashley Styles. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time.